If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, which should be a familiar passage to many of you who are in our community groups right now. Um, Last weekend, I was at a conference, and I heard somebody say that others may preach the gospel better than you, but they will never preach a better gospel. That's encouraging to me, but even as I say that, I'm praying John and Melinda make it home safely next week. So uh, we'll stick fast to the word today. Uh, Galatians chapter 1. My daughter and her cousins have this game they like to play. It's called the telephone game. Uh, Some of you may know what I'm talking about. You get 10 or 15 little kids and they sit around in a circle and, and the first kid comes up with a message or a phrase that he wants to he wants to say, and he whispers it into the ear of the kid that's next to him, and, and he or she hears it, and they whisper what they think they hear until it gets back around to the beginning. Um, and it's, it's a fun game, right? They don't always get it right. Sometimes the message gets garbled up. It's, uh, by the end of the game, it's something new and, and completely different. So, for example, the first kid will say, I'm going to color a square, and it becomes, I'm going to color my square, and then I'm going to color my hair. And then I'm going to cut my hair. And then by the end, you get this, this kid that says, I'm going to cut off all of your hair. <laughs> Which, you know, is not the original message. Uh, but sometimes, and, and I've seen this, you have this like, mischievous child that wants to intentionally change the message. So they will hear it right, but they will in turn give something false or something untrue to the next person. Um, This child's not playing the game fair, and the other kids down the line, they have no hope of getting the message right. Well, today in our passage, we're going to see similar individuals back in the first century of Galatia. Um, These were not like mischievous, miscreant little kids, but these were evil men, and they were poisoning the gospel of Christ. So Paul had gone to Galatia, and he'd gone there to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who had never heard of Jesus. He told them of God's coming wrath against sinners, but he also told them of the loving, gracious salvation that has been provided for us in Christ. Paul has given a pure message, but false teachers were beginning to infiltrate this church in Galatia after he had left. So so Paul writes this letter to address these evil men, and in doing so, we see what the true message of the gospel is and what, why it's important. Starting in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who, are, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of God. All right, so 
we see in the first five verses that Paul is addressing brothers in Christ. These brothers, he had proclaimed the gospel to, um, they had professed faith and had been following Jesus with him. He, he then he restates his apostolic authority to, to give them the word, and he gives a brief gospel summary at the beginning. Finally, he ascribes this gospel uh, to this gospel. He ascribes glory to God and praises the Almighty Lord for the sovereign work he has done. So then in verse 6, he immediately changes his tone. It is here that we're going to land today. Paul has written this letter for one purpose. It was to rebuke the people infiltrating the church with a false message. They tried to apply old Jewish laws to the Christian faith and promote some sort of hybrid religion. In verses 6 through 9, Paul addresses this gospel distortion. Verse 6 and 7 say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In all of Paul's other epistles, he has much longer introductions and prayers of thanksgiving for the church, um, encouraging them and dwelling on the love that they have in Christ for one another. But here, it is not so. Here he immediately begins in a harsh tone um, to address this gospel distortion. Paul knows, and he is teaching here, that if you distort the gospel, you lose the gospel and you've lost the church. We all know distortion. what distortion is. It, is. it is changing something or presenting something in a way that alters the truth. We are making a statement that may have some truth in it, but altering some key details, meaning, and the meaning is changed entirely. It is, it is a half-truth or intentionally misstating something or misrepresenting facts, and it ends up in something that is false. He is pointing out the distortion of their message in our verses today by making three key points. First, Paul is staking a claim to the exclusivity of the gospel. He is claiming the exclusivity of the gospel. Again, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Not that there is another one. This, this is an exclusive message. There is one gospel. There is one message of good news. There is one and only one message that we preach as Christians, and that is Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. As Christians, we believe there is one perfect and holy God who created the world and everything in it. We believe that man, though created good and without sin, was by his own actions fell into sin. And not, not only the first man, Adam, but all men after Adam. We stand now as rebels against our holy and righteous God. As Christians, we believe all have sinned and fallen short of God's holy and righteous standard. We believe that for those who die in their sin, the only thing that awaits them in the next life is God's righteous punishment wrath, and fury. Left to ourselves, we are without hope. As Christians, we believe that all through the Old Testament, God promised a Savior, a liberator, that would deliver his people and bring them close to him. We believe that this Savior, this promised Messiah, was given to us 
in Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man. As Christians, we believe that Jesus lived a perfect and righteous life, never sinning, yet he died taking and absorbing the full wrath of God, a punishment that was due to us. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Christians, we believe that on the third day, Jesus was then raised back to life, validating his message gloriously, triumphantly, conquering sin and death, so that in him, we too may have the hope of everlasting life. This is why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that by God's grace, all who repent of their sin, who truly renounce the sinful lifestyle, and place their trust in Jesus alone for salvation, we believe that God removes their guilt and clothes them in his own righteousness. And we believe Jesus' own words when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the Christian message. This is the Christian gospel. We are bad and sinful and lost. We have rebelled against a good and holy God who cannot and will not let sin go unpunished. But this same God has condescended down to us. He has taken on human flesh and has died in our place Repent of your sin and turn to him in faith as the only one who can save you. This is our message. This, this is an exclusive message. The Bible does not have wiggle room on this. Uh, Paul says in verse 7, there is no other gospel. There are not multiple ways to get to God. Commonly today we'll hear someone say that many religions are equally valid uh, there is, there's, it's as if God was at the top of the mountain and different religions are different paths up the mountain to get to him. Um, understand, there is no way for us to climb and get to God. Rather, God came to us. He has come through Jesus alone, and there is nothing we can do to earn his favor. His gracious message to us is to repent of our sin, to trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, this is our only hope. Look again to your Savior. Look again to what Christ has done and marvel in his glory. Look in repentance, look in gratitude, look in faith, and thank God for mercy and grace that none of us deserve. This is the exclusivity that Paul is getting at here. This is the gospel. This is the truth that we embrace. This is the foundation of our church. We are saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, there is no other gospel. Paul tackles gospel distortion by first addressing the exclusivity of the gospel, and then second, we see him speak of the purity of the gospel. The purity of the gospel. The gospel message was being crippled in Galatia. This group of aptly named Judaizers had infiltrated the church, and we know that from the rest of the letter that these men were adding requirements unto faith in Christ alone for salvation. They taught that in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, certain aspects of the old covenant, the old Jewish Levitical law, uh, must be kept. 
they were adding rules like circumcision onto this like, newly converted church. They were distorting God's message of grace in Christ, and they were blending it with the requirements found in the law. In doing so, they were creating an entirely new message. Uh, the gospel of Jesus is pure. Anything that we try to add on to the work of Christ, anything that we think will help to justify us before God, uh, shows that we are not trusting in Christ alone. We are not putting our entire trust in him alone for salvation. We are trying to hedge our bet. We have not fully trusted and rested in Jesus. We have not truly realized how sinful we are and how desperately we need someone else to save us. By adding Jewish law and tradition onto faith in Christ, these men have denied Christ entirely. Uh, remember, all of those things in the Old Covenant pointed forward to Christ. They were intended to show or to represent uh, the coming Messiah in some way. So think of the sacrificial system. We think of them killing an innocent lamb uh, on the Day of Atonement, and this was to atone for the sin of the people. This lamb in and of itself did nothing, but it pointed forward to Christ, the Lamb of God who would come and atone for the sin of his people. Uh, we think of the, the Sabbath day uh, law. We think of the rest that we see on the Sabbath in the Old Covenant pointing forward to a greater rest that we as Christians have in Christ. We receive in Christ. Christians rest now knowing that in him we are forgiven. It is not a day that we honor, but rather our entire life now is looking back to Christ and faith and we rest. This side of the cross, we no longer point forward to Christ. We point uh, and look back to him in faith. The, the Jewish law no longer applies to us. Passover and circumcision and sacrifices and festivals are not binding on the Christian. But the object of those laws, the thing that they were all pointing forward to, uh, Jesus, the Messiah, he is still the object of our faith in the new covenant. So, this gospel is pure. It is only by God's grace that we are saved through faith in Christ alone. And this is something that the Judaizers were distorting in Galatia. They were trying to bring the church under the bondage of this false gospel. Paul immediately and harshly condemns this heresy. He says, You are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They are distorting the pure gospel. Uh, yesterday, Allison and I had a discussion on what the word pure means. We had sung it one of our songs here, and so she was asking, what does it mean? So to try and describe it to her, I said, okay, think about a glass of water, a glass of pure, clear, refreshing water. It's all water. There's nothing else in it. Uh, now add something to it. Add a little dirt or a little mud or a little poison. Um, Suddenly, the entire thing is bad. It is not pure. Likewise, the gospel is pure, and adding anything to the gospel, even anything small, changes the entire message. Distortion of a pure gospel was a problem in Paul's day, and it is no less of a problem today. Let's consider some of the modern-day distortions that we see. First of all, we see occasionally the same distortion that Paul saw in his day. Uh, there are those who confuse the demands of the Old Covenant with the revealed truth of the New Covenant. 
On more than one occasion, I've met individuals that believe that they must keep the entire law in order to be right with God. Uh, in fact, in our last trip, in, in our first trip to Manila, uh, John had a discussion with an individual who thought that he needed to keep all of the law as it was laid out in the Old Testament, in addition to having faith in Christ. <coughs> when John asked him how he's able to do this, especially since the place of sacrifice no longer exists, we don't have a temple anymore, uh, it is literally impossible to keep some of these laws, he responded with, God expects us to do the best we can. Well, there's a, there's a problem with that. God doesn't expect us to do the best we can. God is holy. God is perfect. God laid out those old covenant laws and expected the Israelites to keep them perfectly. He expected and demanded that they worship him according to his word. This, this man had missed it. He did not understand that those laws were pointing forward to Jesus. He was trusting, in some respects, to his own works, doing the best that he can. When we do this, uh, when we think that God wants us to do the best that we can and that it somehow merits salvation from the penalty of sin, we are not trusting in Christ for salvation. We have hedged our bet. Left to our own devices, we are damned. We see what Jesus has done uh, in our place on the pages of Scripture. Therefore, we rest in his finished work. The second distortion that we see uh, commonly today is the prosperity gospel. Uh, so you probably know what this is. For many years, preachers in America have been pumping this out uh, to the rest of the world. This false teaching teaches that, above all, God wants us to have health and wealth in this life here on earth. It teaches that we can name it and claim it. It places the top priority on making us happy and comfortable and wealthy in this life. And it uses the name of Jesus as a means to get this. It teaches that you can have your best life now. The problem with this heresy is that uh, it doesn't teach that Jesus is our treasure. In, in a sick imitation of Christian-like talk, they place health and money and prosperity and temporal happiness as an idol. Um, it cherry-picks verses that when you take them completely out of context, they seem to support your argument. It is not a pure, undistorted gospel. Uh, consider Jesus' own words when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is explicitly telling his disciples that if they want to follow him, if they want to be a disciple of Christ, they must abandon their fleshly desires, lay down their life. They must take up this instrument of torture and of death and willingly walk with him no matter what the cost. This is costly, and this is what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. When the prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or Joyce Meyer or T.D. Jakes promise health and wealth in the name of Jesus, they are offering you, they're not offering you a pure gospel based on Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin. They are offering a twisted, distorted lie that idolizes self and money. Um, another distortion we see uh, occasionally today is uh, the... Uh, so-called social gospel. This false teaching is born out of theological liberalism uh, in, the, in, in the attempt to reconcile a middle ground between the miracles that we read about in the Bible and the enlightened skeptics of today. A brand of Christianity has rejected the truthfulness of God's word. They have said that the Bible has some good principles, 
but it isn't literally true. Uh, certainly, they say the miracles, like parting the Red Sea and the virgin, ter- virgin birth, aren't to be understood as historical events. They, they say we should focus instead on taking care of people's physical needs here on earth. You can, you can see the error in this thinking um, if you do not believe that Jesus was truly man and truly God. If you do not believe that his death on the cross was a supernatural event where God the Father placed and poured out his wrath on God the Son for the forgiveness of sin, then you've, you've lost the gospel. Those who teach the social gospel are trusting in their own works. Now, clearly, as Christians, we are to help the fatherless and the widow. We are to have compassion on the poor. And this compassion is supposed to take on real physical actions here on earth. But this is not supposed to be separated from the message of the good news of Christ and from his pure and undistorted gospel. The social gospel prioritizes the helping of people through physical toils in this life while completely neglecting their most desperate and eternal need to be rescued from their sin. This, this is not Christianity. Gospel purity has been lost. These first three gospel distortions, the, the Judaizers, the prosperity gospel, the social gospel, are all real and heretical errors that we fight today. Um, but looking around the room, this probably isn't where we live, right? This, this probably doesn't hit home for most of us. Um, this is sort of an us, not them problem. I would suggest there are two greater, more subtle ways that you and I struggle with gospel distortion. The first of these would be a form of functional legalism, where you create man-made rules, even rules that you've based on good biblical principles, and you blanketly apply your rules to everyone in the church. You make your rules the measure of whether or not someone is truly a Christian. Now, this can be done explicitly, but more often in our circles, this is done implicitly, uh, even by people who would recite the gospel with 100% pure orthodox truth. Uh, This usually takes the form of identifying sin in others and pressing upon them your own ethic that you've developed in a specific area. You're not explicitly saying the person's not a Christian, but by your words and your actions, you're treating them as if they're lost. Here, I am not talking about actual identifiable sin like drunkenness or sexual immorality or stealing or lying or gossip or envy or dissension. Indeed, we are to pursue holiness in Christ together as the church. But there are many things that the Bible does not specifically address, and we need to earnestly, honestly apply biblical principles for ourselves, recognizing that others may come to different conclusions on the, in these areas. Um, for example, uh, my wife and I have chosen to abstain completely from alcohol. We don't drink at all. Um, I see in the scriptures that we're to avoid drunkenness, and we've made the choice for us, for our family, that we will not drink uh, altogether. At the same time, I see Jesus in the scripture turning water into wine. I see Jesus using wine for the Last Supper. He does not forbid the act. In fact, he participates in it. So I recognize this is not a sin in my head. But I will say this, when it comes to showing grace to others who make different choices than I do, I often struggle. And 
immediately the little Pharisee inside of me jumps up and says, if this person is truly a Christian, why are they acting in this way? I have become a functional legalist imposing my man-made rules, even a good principle based on, based on the Bible um, that I apply to myself, but I've applied those to others uh, in a way that I should not do. Um, if you want to talk with me further about this, we can talk about it over a Coke something. <laughs> this issue has been a struggle for me. Um, but this is far from the only issue that we struggle with in the church. Uh, growing up, the battlegrounds were often dress or movies or music or tattoos or hairstyle and a ton of uh, a number of other fertile battlegrounds. Implied in this pharisaical attitude is the thought that true Christians to conform, will conform to this specific set of guidelines. Calling out sin where there is no sin is suffocating, and it denies the gospel that you say you believe. It is, it is an impure distortion of the gospel, and it chokes out the message of grace. All right, so if legalism is, is a ditch on one side of the road, then that, that is a real struggle for the, us in the church. The other side is equally as dangerous. There is a distorted gospel that Pastor John MacArthur calls easy believism. This is the opposite end of the spectrum, where someone thinks that just because they raised their hand or prayed a prayer of repentance or had an emotional response when they were younger, that they are saved and they can live the rest of their life however they want. They think that they are covered by grace, and it matters not if they continue to live in sin. Paul addressed this false, this false doctrine directly in Romans 6. After describing the free gift of salvation in Christ, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. If we are Christians, if we are truly converted, our lives will always, always be marked by change in our attitudes and our actions. If we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if we have repented of our sinful lifestyle, we will not go on wallowing in sin. Of course, we're not perfect, not until we are united with the Lord one day, but we are changed, we are different, and our lives will show that. If there is not a discernible difference in your thoughts and actions, it may show that there was no true conversion after all. If sin does not bother you at all, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to take a long look at your life and ask yourself if you have truly trusted in Christ. Have you repented of your faith? Is Jesus your treasure above all else? Have you taken up your cross and followed him? Are you actively killing sin in your life, like he tells us to in Romans 8.13? Are you applying biblical principles in your life in areas where the Bible does not specifically address certain actions? While we don't impose those on others, certainly as Christians we must faithfully and diligently do this by the Spirit through the Word for ourselves. We are not saved by our works. It is only by the grace of God, but it is also not separated from a changed outlook and actions. As James 2 says, faith without works, is dead. It is not true faith at all. 
we must hold fast to the purity of the true gospel message and not let distortion drag us into one ditch or the other. Now we've seen in verses 6 and 7, the gospel is exclusive. We've seen the gospel message is pure. The third thing we see is the sufficiency of the gospel. The sufficiency of the gospel. Look again in verses 8 and 9. It says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is a very uh, key and critical point when we look at gospel distortion. Paul goes to great lengths elsewhere in this letter to establish himself as a true apostle with authority to give the gospel. In verse 1, he says, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. We are to believe him because he is an apostle. Later in the letter, he talks about how this message is no different than that of the others, other apostles. Uh, indeed, Paul has received this message directly from Christ. Now, while Paul has been given the message, the, the authority to proclaim the message, he does not have the authority to change the message. Verse 8 says that if he comes to them with a message contrary to the one that he has already delivered, he is accursed. The messenger has authority to bring the message, but does not have authority to alter the message in any way. This is similar to an ambassador to a foreign country. When someone is appointed as an ambassador by the king or by a president, uh, they are given the authority to speak on behalf of the ruler. The, they are adorned with power and honor. They arrive at the foreign country able to deliver the king's message with all of the king's authority. The rulers uh, in the receiving country will take the words from the ambassador as if they are directly from the king. The messenger has the power. He has the power to deliver the king's message. But the messenger has no power to change the message. Likewise, Paul, an ambassador for King Jesus, does not have the authority to change Christ's message, the gospel. However, this is exactly what the Judaizers have been doing in Galatia. Uh, first of all, they did not have apostolic authority, but, but more than that, they changed the message. They've added additional requirements to the true message. Uh, this, this is a very important principle for us today. We cannot add to the revelation that we have already received from God. No additional revelation is required from God. His word is sufficient. No new message is coming. We do not have the apostolic authority from Christ to bring a new message. We have in our scriptures the full and complete revelation from God that was delivered through the prophets and the apostles. It is pure, undistorted gospel message that is complete and full. This is sufficient. In addition, look at what it says for those who are involved in the practice of, of spreading this false message. They are accursed. Verse 9 says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Uh, this, this is no soft message from Paul. He is saying that there is absolutely no hope for those who are involved in spreading a false gospel. He repeats this twice in two verses, and this warning is haunting. Uh, if you're involved in spreading a false teaching, it is not a light matter. Without Christ and his freeing message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, you have no hope and you'll be eternally punished. 
uh, accursed. And you would be held all the more responsible because you have spread this message to others, leading them down a false path. So how shall we then respond? Uh, what does this warning drive us toward? Uh, I think first, it should drive us to keep a watch, a very close watch on our own doctrine. <coughs> the very first thing that we must do is, is look inside ourselves and make sure that we know what we believe and that it matches up to God's word. We, we miss, must make sure that our doctrine is undistorted and pure. We must make sure that when we teach our children or share the gospel with our coworkers, that we are not spreading lies. We must bend our understanding to match the revealed truth in Scripture. We do not fall into the camp of false teachers. The, the stakes are high. If we, have, if we do not have the gospel right, there is no possible way that we are covered by the grace of God. This should drive us to a second action, be on guard against false teaching. Measure everything that you hear according to the, to the truth that we see in God's word. Do not just take anyone's word for it, but seek the scriptures for yourselves and be discerning in what you hear from false teachers. Stadiums are filled with people following false teachers uh, because they have not discerned truth from the word of God. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. I encourage you to look to God as he is found in the Bible, and there you will find truth. Gospel distortion is uh, a serious business. It is important to see the gospel as it truly is, undistorted and pure. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things at the fair uh, was called the Hall of Mirrors. As you walk down this hall, there are mirrors lining both sides. These mirrors However, are not straight, flat mirrors like the bathroom, but they're curved to change your appearance. Uh, some of them are curved in such a way to make you look really thin, which are awesome. Uh, some make you look short and squatty, and some stretch you out real tall. Um, Josh Blaylock would probably be like 10 feet tall in, there, in those mirrors. Uh, these mirrors are showing you something that has some truth in it, right? I can see myself, but they distort the image. They are showing something that has key details altered, distorted, and what you get is a false picture of the real you. Uh, this, is, this is a lighthearted example of what distortion can look like, but this is not a carnival game. This is the gospel of Christ, and eternity for lost sinners hangs in the balance. We must be clear and confident and truthful in the message that we proclaim. When Paul says that there are some who would distort the gospel of Christ, he is saying that evil men are changing key details. There may be some truth in what they say, right? So uh, Jesus plus fill in the blank. Um, but they have distorted the gospel and they compromise the truthfulness of their entire message. The message we proclaim is exclusive. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The message we proclaim is pure. The gospel message was once for all delivered to the saints and cannot be added to or taken away from. And the message we proclaim is sufficient. God has given us everything we need in the pages of Holy Scripture. Pray that we truthfully embrace the message and faithfully proclaim this to the world. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for this message you have given to us. We thank you for your word that 
we can trust your word that shows us who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that we do not add from or take away to the gospel. I pray that we indeed hold it, uh, Jesus as our treasure and that we uh, go forward and share this with others. In your name we pray. Amen.